Welcome to First Baptist Church in Belton. We are glad you found us. We seek to know Jesus intimately, serve Jesus passionately, and share Jesus globally together. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy today's message. How great it is to lift our voices and praise together in this wonderful place. Gary, thank you for having the choir sing for us this morning. They didn't know they were going to do that back in July, but how beautiful. And we're excited just a few more weeks to hear from them in person. By the way, tomorrow is Gary's birthday. So uh, happy birthday, Gary. 49. Again, so uh, Gary, we love you. Thank you, brother. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be over all the earth. Father, you are a great, a good, and a merciful, and a gracious, and a just God. We acknowledge your power and your presence. We acknowledge with gratitude your mercy, your grace, and your love. Undeserved by me, undeserved by any of us, and yet you have chosen us, you have spoken to our hearts, you have drawn us to yourself, we have surrendered to you, and you have blessed us with the gift of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, and you have blessed us with the amazing gift of eternal life. We are thankful today and shall be thankful forever until in your presence we are able to bow the knee and say, thank you. Thank you for saving my soul. Now, Father, in this room, this many folks, it is inevitable that there's someone here who does not yet know you through your son, Jesus. I pray that even now the Spirit is speaking to his or her heart, calling, drawing, wooing, and that this day will be the day of salvation for someone in this room. We love you. We acknowledge you again in your greatness. We thank you for blessing us. Thank you for the gift of allowing us to be in this place today. Speak to us through your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Jude? That's the little one-chapter book just before Revelation, the book of Jude. And then if you would also, if you can be ambidextrous and turn also to 1 Corinthians 15, as we'll read two passages Jude and 1 Corinthians 15. Words will be on the screen. You're welcome to use your own Bibles, of course. And as you're finding the place, 
Some of you here have been thinking about membership in First Baptist Belton, and if that's the case, we are having our new members class this morning right after this worship service. It will be in room 124, which if you don't know where that is, just go this way, take a left, and if you still can't find it as you go back that way, then ask a member and they'll tell you where it is, right? All our members know, 124, right? That's next to the office. So I hope to see some of you there. An opportunity for you to hear who we are and what we're about and then to make a decision as the Spirit leads you. Is this the place where I want to invest my life, where I want to serve, where I want to minister, be part of this family? Hope to see some of you there in just a little while. It's about an hour long if you need a time gauge. And uh, then it will will be over. So uh, in my last messages to you as your senior pastor... I've asked you to remember how much Jesus loves you, to remember the greatness of our God, to remember the joy of being a Christian, to remember the importance of sharing Jesus globally, and to remember the joy and privilege of biblical stewardship. Today, we're going to talk about defending the faith or defending the gospel, the importance of defending the gospel. And so I hope that we all understand that we need to be prepared to do that and we need to be willing to do that. So if you are at Jude in uh, the book before Revelation, uh, stand with me if you wish. If you wish to remain seated, that that's okay. Book of Jude, and it says, Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with the first verse. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you were saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me, Paul, also as to one abnormally born. You may be seated. This morning, we think about the importance of defending the gospel. So I want to ask a few questions based on what we've seen in Jude and in 1 Corinthians 15. The first question is, who are we? Who are we as the people of God in this place called First Baptist Belton? Who are we? And Jude answers that question very explicitly. First of all, he says, we are the called. We are the called. That word called can literally be translated official summons. Official summons. We have been summoned by God. Salvation does not begin with us. If it did, it could end with us. We could lose it. But salvation begins with God and he takes the initiative. Notice how he words it. To those who have been called, according to Jude, the first verse. Let me remind you of how Peter expressed it in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, as he said in verse 9, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are the called. Through the Holy Spirit, you are drawn to God. He calls, you surrender, and enter into a personal relationship with God. What an incredible privilege is ours Now, in my last weeks, I can't say everything that I really would want to say. But I hope we will never forget the privilege that is ours of being the children of God. That's what we are. Now, also as we think about who we are, we're the call, but we're also loved by God. You're loved by God. Look again at verse 1. To those who have been called who are loved... In God, the Father. That could literally be translated, you are his beloved. I I like that. I like that. You are his beloved. You're set apart. That word for love in the Greek is a form of, of agape, God's kind of love, unconditional love. God, God loves everyone, but the saved are his beloved. That word is attached to you and to me. How did, how did John, we talked about how Peter expressed being called. How did John, who is often called the apostle of love, how did he express it? Well, in his first of three epistles in first John chapter three, here's what he said in the very first verse of that chapter. See what great love the father has lavished I like that word too, lavish. You know, do you ever like to get a gift where somebody just lavishes something on you? That's pretty cool. I like that. Well, that see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. You're precious to him. 
Nothing you do makes him love you more. Nothing you do makes him love you less. You are of eternal worth to him. Don't ever forget it. Here's how Paul worded it when he wrote the incredible book of Romans in the 8th chapter. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That covers it all. You are loved. So you're called, you're loved, and also you are kept by Jesus. You're kept by Jesus. Somebody ought to say amen. Can you imagine if being kept were up to, were up to you or to me? I'd probably let go every day. I'm, I'm not the holder on. I'm not the person holding on to him. He's holding on to me. Thank God for that. Look again at that first verse. Who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. That can be translated kept for, kept by, kept in Jesus Christ. The word kept is a Greek word tereo, which means watched or guarded. And, and the tense is continual, so it means he keeps on watching you. He keeps on guarding you. He keeps on keeping you. I like that too. He's not saying I kept you for a while and then I let you go, you lunkhead. No, he said, I've been holding on to you ever since the day Christ came into your heart. I've been, I've been holding on to you. Reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.12. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. We are kept by him who died for us. So we're called, we're, we're the, we're, we're the called, we're loved, we're kept. And also, according to the second verse of Jude, you have mercy, peace, and love. Mercy, peace, and love in abundance. Notice how he words it. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. <laughs> in abundance. From God to you and me to share and show. There, there are three basic relationships in life. There's your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, and your relationship with others. And so he addresses all three of those in the words mercy, peace, and love. First of all, in our relationship with God, he shows us mercy. He does not give us what we deserve. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In our relationship with ourselves, we have peace. Mercy, peace. Mercy, peace, and love. We have peace. Peace that only he can give. Again, John in his gospel, words it this way in chapter 14. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. We have mercy, we have peace, and we have love. Love in our relationship with others. For Jesus said in John chapter 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. <laughs> Love's in short supply today, have you noticed? That, can't, that cannot be us. 
We must love one another. So that's who we are. Now he gets to verse three and having in Jude and having said all that, he says, dear friends, I thought I was going to write to you about the greatness of our salvation. That's what I was planning on doing, but I felt compelled by the Holy Spirit. I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith or contend for the gospel that was once for all entrusted to God's people. So that brings up the second question, and that is this. What is the gospel? If we're going to defend it, then what is it? What is the gospel? Well, that's where we find perhaps the most succinct definition of the gospel, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the verses that we read just a moment ago. It's clear. Paul makes it clear what the gospel is. It's it's the story of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the witnesses who saw him, the testimony that, that they gave, and the passion that they felt about what they had experienced. Now, a lot of people are impassioned today. Have you noticed? But, but there are not enough who are impassioned about the gospel. We must be impassioned about the gospel. Above all else, impassioned about the gospel. So, who are we? And what is the gospel? The story of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection. First Corinthians 15, if anybody says, well, what is the gospel? You can take them right there and you get, you get it just real succinctly. So that leads to the third question. Why defend the gospel? Why defend it? Well, well, that must be a high priority. Perhaps number one priority for us is to defend the gospel. Now, when I use those words, you're probably thinking of a defensive position. But that's not the intent of the gospel. That's not the intent of the passages. It's not a defensive position. We defend the gospel on the offensive. Now, I don't mean being offensive. Don't confuse that term but being on the offensive, not obnoxious, not overbearing, but clear and with love and effectiveness. Defend the gospel. When you look at Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul talks about putting on the armor of God, that's what you get a picture. That's where we're on the offensive. We put on the armor of God. An army does not win a battle by being totally on the defensive. They must go on the offensive to win the battle. And so we put on the full armor of God and we defend the gospel. I think we addressed that two weeks ago when we talked about the, the importance of sharing Jesus globally. And we asked ourselves the question, why, why should we do that? And we discovered there are four answers to that. One is it's a command of Jesus. Number two, the fields are white already into harvest. Number three, everybody in this world is going to either heaven or hell. And we, we want as many as possible to go to heaven. And it's sheer joy to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Another aspect of all of this importance in our Western culture is a true defending of the faith, the gospel, because we live in a culture, and you know this, we live in a culture where truth is relative. Truth is no longer objective, it is relative in our culture. 
Now, that's not what we believe, but that's what most people believe. Well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Uh, Live out your own truth. My truth is this. Your truth is that. Totally contradictory to Scripture. And so it's important for us today to hold up, hold up the truth, to shine the light of Jesus on the gospel. Now, the fourth question is this, against whom or what do we defend the gospel? Against whom or what do we defend the gospel? Well, I've got some quick suggestions, some quick answers to that, and I can't elaborate on them. I just run through them. And I don't know that these are in the order of importance. In fact, they, they aren't, but they're just as the Spirit put them on my heart and I just writing them down. So here, here's, we must defend the gospel against intellectual and spiritual laziness. We must defend the gospel against intellectual and spiritual laziness. The church cannot afford it. Spiritual laziness is overcome very simply by our practicing the base basics of discipleship, the basics of our faith, by reading the Word of God and praying on a daily basis and, and being taught and praying together and listening to God's Word, the basics of discipleship. And intellectually, stretch your mind and your heart. I have never in all of my life claimed to be the sharpest pencil in the room. And if I did, my sister would say, hold on. But I try to stretch my mind. I, I read constantly. I'm embarrassed to say I'm reading five books right now. I don't know what's wrong with me. Some of you can start a book and finish it and then go to the next one. I, I can't. I, I read part, put it down, read part of another one, go back and back and forth all over the place. I started to bring those five books this morning, but I thought that's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. So stretching our minds reading books about the Bible, reading books that, that are wholesome and help, helpful and, and not making our reading time be on Facebook or other stuff, but stretching our minds in reading things that will be helpful to us both spiritually and intellectually. And, and you, you know they're still producing books, by the way. Do you know that? They're, you can still get one and it's got paper. But hey, if you want to do it electronically, that's just great because now we've got that option. You can buy a book and put it on your iPad and go for it. But whatever the case may be, intellectual and spiritual laziness cannot mark us as a people in the days to come. We must also defend the gospel against church light. And by that I mean L-I-T-E, church light. What does that mean? Church light, meaningless membership, puny stewardship, invisible discipleship and evangelism, passionless worship, neglect of the least of these around us, and ineffective missions that says missions is something they do. Now, I could probably go on, but that's a picture of church light. We are not church light. But if we are not careful, like any other church that is not careful, we could become church light and we don't want to go there. Also, in defending the gospel, we must defend the gospel against creeping heresy. 
creeping heresy. It's subtle. It usually does not make a frontal assault because we'd recognize that immediately and say no. But it's a creeping heresy that just kind of slips in while nobody's looking or paying attention. For instance, two-thirds of all Americans today believe that there are many ways to God. Everybody lives around you, including many in the church, believe there are many ways to God. Not just one way through Jesus, but many ways to God. And they'll say to you, well, I'm glad you found God through Jesus, but I'm finding God through whatever else. Heresy is not the same as error. You know, we can look at a passage of Scripture and we can make an error. You know, we, we believe very firmly about baptism, being believers' baptism and, and by immersion, but some of our brothers and sisters in Christ have a little different different view of that, and we would just simply kindly, graciously say, well, you're in error, uh, but but not heresy. But there are tons of heretical views, and it's a choice to abandon the widely and traditionally accepted teaching of the faith. Paul said it in Galatians 1.9, you're preaching another gospel now to the churches in Galatia. For instance, some today say works contribute to our salvation. Others, in an historically age-old heresy, Christ was not human. He only appeared to be that way. Or the prosperity, health and wealth gospel. It is heresy. We'll call it by what it is. Or the I'm okay, you're okay, don't mention sin, repentance, and hell theology. You heard of that one? And there are many, many more. So we must defend the gospel against creeping heresy. We must defend the gospel against deceptive liberalism. Those who say, well, you know, the, the word of God is, it has changed. It doesn't mean the same thing now that it did 2,000 years ago. Or there are parts of the scripture that are in error, that, that weren't, they really aren't true. I mean, the, the writers were earnest and sincere, but it's just not true. And, and, and that's, that's all around us and usually creeping heresy and deceptive liberalism go together. And then we must defend the gospel against crushing legalism. Crushing legalism. And and, and conservative churches, of which we are one, have to be really careful about that one because it's only a short step from conservatism to crushing legalism. We don't want to go there. Crushing legalism is exacting, unforgiving, and overbearing, and free from all grace at all. We must defend the gospel against unwarranted presumption. We presume on God and his grace. Well, of course I'm a Christian. I'm an American. Well, of course I'm saved. I'm a baptized Baptist. Of course I know Jesus. My parents took me to church every Sunday. Well, I can do whatever I wish because I live under grace. We must defend the gospel against unwarranted presumption. We must defend the gospel against unhinged morality. Unhinged morality. My soul. I don't need to give illustrations of that, do I? It's all around us. Turn on your television for five minutes, ten maybe, 
Marriage is no longer one man, one woman. Uh, homosexuals can teach our Sunday school. They can teach our children. That it's okay for them to be deacons. It's okay for them to be on staff. We must defend the gospel against unhinged morality, knowing that as we do, there will be a whole lot of folks who won't treat us kindly as a result. We must defend the gospel against political correctness. <laughs> what a great term, political correctness. You're almost afraid to say anything, so you don't say anything. But we must defend the gospel against political correctness. We must defend the gospel against political exclusivity and superiority. That's a mouthful. Those who would say in the church, believe like me, I'm superior in knowledge and learning. And in today's very angry world, you cannot be my friend or my brother and sister in Christ unless you agree with me 100%. We want doctrinal purity, but I would caution you about demanding political purity. Be careful. And then lastly, we defend the gospel against outright real persecution. Not pretend, not phony persecution about this or that nothingness, but real persecution that is a reality and becoming increasingly a reality and will soon be an intense reality, I am suspecting, in our own nation. But we talked about that a few months ago, didn't we? Remember what we said? It looks like everything's falling apart. (laughs) Nope. Everything's falling into place. Everything's falling into place. Jesus is coming again. Well, two more questions and we're done. How do we defend the gospel? How do we defend the gospel? First of all, we defend the gospel with knowledge. We can't defend what we don't know. We must defend the gospel with knowledge. And we have no excuse, absolutely no excuse. There was a time in church history, in a time not all that long ago, when Bibles were not, I mean, it's hard to get a Bible. And sometimes it's been illegal to get a Bible in certain places at certain times. And and then there was a time when most people couldn't even read. Only the highly trained and intellectually elite, whatever that meant, they could read, but nobody else could read. So the church would read the Bible for the people. And when they did, they twisted the fire out of it. We don't have any excuse. Most of you have multiple Bibles in your home. You have books about the Bible, and if you don't, they're readily available. We, we have no excuse. Maybe there was a time when somebody could have said, well, I, I'm doing the best I can, but I can't read and I don't have a Bible. Well, we can't, we can't do that. We can't say that. We defend the Bible with knowledge, with conviction, with courage, with kindness. Those two go together, by the way. There are some people who have courage, but they they have no idea what kindness is all about. And there are others who have kindness, but they don't have courage, so they don't say anything. Courage and kindness go together. And we must defend the gospel with obvious transparency, transparency of our lives and of our beliefs. So that brings us to the last question, what will be the results? What will be the results? We will have... A stronger church. We will experience 
the mercy of Christ, we will see the salvation of the lost, and we will know the glory of God. Because I see hands writing, I'm going to read those again, and then we'll pray. We will have a stronger church. We will experience the mercy of Christ. We will see the salvation of the lost, and we will know the glory of God. Defend the gospel. Father, our heart's desire with conviction, with courage, and with kindness is to defend the gospel. So I pray that we will with transparency of life, that we are who we say we are, with transparency of belief, we are ready to share with anybody that we can. Help us to always remember as a church the importance of defending the gospel. Now, there's someone in this room who needs Jesus. And I'm absolutely convinced with this many people in the room that there's someone to whom the Spirit is speaking right now, wooing, calling, drawing, drawing you to Jesus. And so in a moment, we're going to stand. Brother Gary will lead us in an invitation hymn. I invite you to come. Uh, I'll put my mask back on. Meet me at the front. Uh, and, And there'll be a staff member to pray with you that this day you can come into a personal saving relationship with Jesus. So Father, I pray someone will come right now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please feel free to call the church at 254-939-0705 if you need prayer or if you just want to talk to somebody. We're here to listen. If you would like more information, visit our church website at fbcbelton.org. We're located at 506 North Main in Belton, Texas, and would love to see you soon.